Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are back on the tech glossary topic in which we look at the various initialisms and acronyms used in the tech world and figure out what they actually mean. In the last episode, we worked up to IRC or Internet Relay Chat. I made a joke that I can get through all the I's in that episode because I can stands for Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, but I actually have a few more I's to cover before we move on, so... I made a liar out of myself. Let's do it. And we're going to start with ISDN. That stands for Integrated Services Digital Network. This requires a bit of a backstory. So way back in the day, we only had what's called the plain old telephone service or POTS, P-O-T-S. So that's kind of a bonus acronym right there. And actually, we still do have that in some regard, but let's get back to business here. 
Back before the 1960s, all the telephone connections depended upon actual interconnected physical wires and mechanical systems and analog signals. So as more lines were joining the system, and again, these were analog signals passed over twisted pair cables of wire, it became increasingly messy, right? As more people and companies and places started to add phone lines, it started to get to be a real mess. And analog systems were not great at supplying reliable long-distance communications service where you had to interconnect between different regional networks. Around the 1950s, the telephone companies began to work on automating various systems. And one potential solution, the one that turned out to be the winner, was to migrate from a purely analog telephone system to a voice-over digital line system. Now, that digital system also allowed for the transmission of digital data. Not just, you know, voice, but other types of information. And in the late 1980s, a part of the United Nations called the International Telecommunications Union, or ITU, another bonus initialism, began to recommend the ISDN standard for data transmission over phone lines. But there were actually two competing versions of ISDN. There was not a standardized version at first. That caused a lot of delays as far as implementation and rollout until a unified standard emerged in the 1990s. So ISDN finally kind of entered the scene and allowed for faster data transmission speeds, or more accurately, greater data throughput. More on that in a little bit. But before too long, other technologies like DSL and cable modems would replace ISDN. Now, you still find ISDN in some places, and I should probably do a full episode about it in the future to really talk about its development, its history, and its implementation. But these episodes are already going far beyond what I expected, so I will spare you. Let's move on. ISP. This is an easy one. It stands for Internet Service Provider. These are the companies that provide internet connectivity services to customers. Those customers might be people, they might be businesses or other organizations, or very organized people, I guess. Some ISPs also offer other services, uh, usually directly connected to internet services. And, uh, you know, some other ISPs end up offering services that are related to telecommunications. So, for example, there are ISPs that might say, all right, well, if you purchase service from us, not only will you have internet connectivity, we'll also give you an email address. Uh, We will host a personal website for you. We might have other software that you have access to. And then you've got, you know, things like cable companies that are also ISPs and they'll bundle internet service with cable TV or telephone service. You get the idea. It's a pretty common thing. Now, back in the 1990s, there were around 10,000 ISPs in the world with the United States laying claim to more than half of them. And if you've listened to my episodes on Earthlink, you heard me talk about one of those ISPs. And these ISPs frequently focused on specific regions. And hey, you know, the Internet's a global thing. So these companies were relying on bigger telecommunications companies to actually connect various, you know, computers together on the Internet. But telecommunications companies like telephone companies and cable companies already had this infrastructure in place to deliver services to customers that could easily be converted over or added onto with the uh, internet speeds. So you could have internet be there in addition to the other services you provided. 
And these regional ISPs just couldn't match that, right? They just didn't have that that kind of infrastructure. And so there are still regional ISPs. They do exist, but they essentially sit on top of these other larger telecommunication company ISPs. And I bring this up because there may be cases in the United States in which it looks like you might have multiple ISP options in your area, but it's probably that all of the smaller ones are just piggybacking on the infrastructure of the big one. So what they're doing is they're essentially leasing space, if you want to think of it that way, on the telecommunication company's technology, and then they resell that to customers. Uh, now, the, the price that these regional ISPs get isn't the same price that you would pay to have internet access. Uh, however, you might be paying more with a regional ISP, and they might try and make it up make up for it with uh, additional services like those software packages I was talking about earlier. Okay, let's move on. IT. <laughs> okay, I included IT because Jen Barber didn't know what it meant, and it means information technology, Jen. The term originates from the late 1970s, which coincidentally marks the earliest days of the first personal computers, and Merriam-Webster defines it as, quote, the technology involving the development, maintenance, and use of computer systems, software, and networks for the processing and distribution of data, end quote. And that definition is a pretty broad one, and made even larger with the era of big data, which necessitates more robust networks and more sophisticated methods of data analysis. And today, we typically associate IT with networks in general and the internet in particular, but clearly the term can apply to all sorts of computer systems. Okay, we're killing it. Let's keep moving. JPEG. This stands for Joint Photographic Experts Group a joint committee that formed specifically for the purposes of establishing standards for the coding of still pictures. But when we use JPEG, we usually mean the file format that this group created, not the group itself. So we mean JPEG or JPG as a file extension, a file type. So the JPEG file format is an image file. Specifically, it's a lossy compression file format, uh, which means it's a way to code still images, but you manage file size by losing some of the data associated with that file. Like a raw image file, if you were to take you know, a really nice digital camera and take a photo with it, a raw image file is really, really big, and that could be a bit of a problem. With JPEG, you compress that down, but you lose some of the information in the process. And the higher the compression you choose, the more data you have to lose in the process. And as a result, the image will not look as good. The more you compress it, the worse the image is going to look, but the smaller the file size. There was a need for this kind of file type because the internet in general and the web in particular really needed that in order to take off. Most of the world was dependent upon dial-up speeds in the early days of the, the web, and dial-up speeds were not terribly fast. Anyone who used a dial-up modem to log into, say, a bulletin board system back in the 1980s, before really the, the dawn of the uh, consumer internet, they know that it could take forever to download an image. And by forever, I just mean like a crazy long amount of time. But these compression formats like JPEG meant that you could get images with 
smaller file sizes, which meant faster download times for those files. This was also important for stuff like email, which frequently has pretty strict limits on how large a message can be before you can send it out. Like if it goes over that, you get that little annoying message saying you've exceeded the the size allowed for sending out an email. The JPEG standard took off like gangbusters and was a big part of why the web itself was able to take off. It allowed for an experience that incorporated more images, and the committee introduced other JPEG standards later on, but the original JPEG format was so popular that the subsequent standards didn't really get much traction, even though they had, you know, arguably superior compression algorithms. Moving on, now we have a trio here, and really it's just a an indication of a whole series of things, which is KBPS, MBPS, and GBPS. These all reference data throughput. KBPS is kilobits per second, or thousands of bits per second. MBPS is megabits per second, or millions of bits per second. And GBPS is gigabits per second, or billions of bits per second. And a bit is a single unit of binary information. It's either a zero or a one. So you can think of it kind of like a physical switch that has two positions, off or on. Sometimes people confuse a word like megabit with the word megabyte, but a byte is actually eight bits. To go into why this is would actually require a pretty long story, so I'll save that for a different episode, but it is good to know that megabit and megabyte are two different things. So if you have a connection and your connection speed is 100 megabits per second for downloads, and then you go to download a file that's 100 megabytes, you have 100 megabits per second. That doesn't mean that you could download a 100 megabyte file in one second. That That's different. Also, we tend to think of this as download speeds, like a 100 megabit per second connection is a faster connection than a 100 kilobit per second connection, but it's slower than 100 gigabit per second, which would be phenomenal. But the way we're describing this is kind of inaccurate. We use it this way because it's how we experience this by by figuring out how long it takes us to transfer certain amounts of information over a connection. But really, by and large, all the data traveling across networks is moving at the same speed. I'm kind of oversimplifying, but largely this is true. So in other words, If I have a connection that is just 56 kilobits per second, like I'm using a dial-up modem and I'm getting 56 kilobits per second download, that's 56,000 bits per second. But you are on a fiber connection. You're pulling down a gigabit per second or 1 billion bits per second. While your connection is better than mine, you're going to get way more data per second than I am. The actual speed of the data traveling across these connections is pretty much the same. It's just that your connection allows for way more data to travel at that speed than mine does. This is easier to understand with an analogy. So let's say we got a really big room full of people, and all the people in this room can walk at the same top speed, and we'll say it's just three miles per hour. That's their top speed of walking. We've got three doorways out of this room. One doorway is wide enough just to let one person through at a time. Doorway number two is wide enough to let two people out at a time. And doorway number three is super wide. It allows 20 people to leave at a time, shoulder to shoulder. Now, 
that last doorway is going to allow way more people to exit the room in a given amount of time than the other two would. But all of the people are still walking at that same top speed of three miles per hour. So when someone says they have a fast internet connection, you can be that person to say, well, actually, you have an internet connection with a high data throughput. And then you can probably escort yourself out of the area because no one will want to be around you. Trust me, I know this from experience. Here in the United States, the national benchmark for broadband speeds is 25 megabits per second. That's 25 megabits per second download speed coming from the internet to your device, in other words. Then it's 3 megabits per second up. That's going from your device up to the internet. So it's it's not the same coming down as it is going up for most internet connections. Uh, it's not you know symmetrical, in other words. It's asymmetrical. Well, we got that standard, or that benchmark, here in the United States back in 2015. Before that, the U.S. definition of broadband was, and brace yourself, 4 megabits per second down, 1 megabit per second up. And I am not joking. And that is pretty low. So with the 25 megabits down, 3 megabits up benchmark for broadband, we learned in the U.S., from census data back in 2019, that 23% of people in the U.S. lack a wired broadband connection. This has been the center of numerous political issues, including the FCC's stance on whether or not it has the authority to classify broadband internet as a utility or something that is a basic right for all citizens. That's something that is a it's an ongoing debate, and it changes largely because the FCC itself changes every time there's a change in, in administration at the top of U.S. politics. It gets pretty complicated. Moving on, let's talk about LAN and WLAN. So LAN, or L-A-N, stands for Local Area Network. This just refers to a series of interconnected computer devices within a limited area. So this could be as large as a college campus, or as small as a really cramped computer dorm room. It doesn't all have to take place in colleges. But just trust me on that last one. It's It counts as a LAN. Now, the internet is the network of networks. Uh, but a LAN does not necessarily have to connect out to the internet. It can be self-contained. So you might create a LAN to work on stuff that probably shouldn't be internet accessible. That allows you to have what's called an air gap which means there's just no direct link between that system and the internet at large. Or you might just have a LAN to facilitate a specific type of computing. The example I always think about is back in the 90s with the popularity of LAN parties. That referred to when geeks like me would go and carry our computers with us to meet up with other geeks, and then we would all link our computers together with actual physical cables uh, or sometimes it would be gaming consoles instead of computers, but you get what I'm saying. And we'd link these together in order to play multiplayer games. Because before internet broadband speeds made online gaming really feasible, this was how we would, you know, the, the hoops we'd jump through in order to create a network to play games like Descent and Duke Nukem 3D against each other. Typically, it's also how esports tend to work. They use local area networks so that one team or player doesn't have a distinct advantage or disadvantage due to a difference in ping times. A ping, by the way, refers to a signal sent from one computer to another, typically like a server, and then the return signal comes back, 
And it's a way of measuring the lag between those two connection points. And you don't want one team to be at a disadvantage just because their their ping was worse, because that doesn't indicate uh, uh, whether they were better players or not, or poorer players or not. So local area networks are a way to kind of eliminate that, or at least reduce it. A WLAN, or you know, WLAN is, surprise, surprise, a wireless LAN. So this is a network that does the same thing as a local area network, only without the physical cables. And like a LAN, a WLAN doesn't necessarily have to connect out to the internet as a whole. It can, but it doesn't have to. These days, broadband speeds allow for online and even cloud-based gaming and computational uses without the need for LAN parties, though some folks will still go and do them. And to be honest, nothing really replaces the experience of, you know, going to a LAN party and playing with or against other people in the same physical location where the talking of smack can become an art form. It's uh, typically also a little less... um, objectively terrible than what you would find with online chat. That is like the worst, but in person, it tends to not quite get that extreme though. I guess one downside is that you can't easily mute another player. If that player is sitting next to you and annoying the heck out of you, unless you know, you happen to have some duct tape handy, by the way, always carry duct tape. We've got more to go, but I feel like we've picked up the pace a little bit, and when we come back, we'll continue going down the alphabet. But first, a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. 
explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. And now let's pick up with LCD. This stands for Liquid Crystal Display, which probably sounds a little odd. After all, the general definition for a crystal is that a crystal is a type of solid material in which the constituent components are in a highly ordered structure, uh, like a, a lattice or scaffolding. So if you were to take a piece of quartz or table salt and you looked at it under a really powerful microscope, you would see these this what looks like a, a fairly smooth surface is in fact made up of these repeated patterns of lattice-like structures that form the overall, you know, solid substance. But if crystal is a subset of solid materials, then what the heck is a liquid crystal? How can you have a liquid crystal? Well, we use the term liquid crystals to describe stuff that has a state of matter that has some elements of crystalline solid features and some elements of a liquid material. So in other words, you might have a substance that, like a liquid, will take on the shape of whatever container it's in. You know, like a bowl of water, you wouldn't have a square of water just sitting in the middle of a bowl, though the water conforms to the shape of the bowl. But if you were to look at that liquid under a microscope, you would see that its molecules are all in a specific orientation, more like a crystalline structure. These are really cool substances, and they allow for all sorts of neat applications. So with a liquid crystal display, these crystals make images, right? Well, not exactly. All right, so there are liquid crystals that, when exposed to an electric current, will change shape. There's a type called twisted pneumatics that do this. And as the name suggests, these crystals have a naturally twisted shape. But when you apply a current to them, they will untwist to some degree, and the degree to which they untwist depends upon the voltage of that current. So, by precisely controlling a voltage of a current, you can then precisely control how much these liquid crystals are able to untwist. And in addition, liquid crystals in LCDs can transmit and change polarized light. Now, a full discussion on what polarized light is and how it works is well beyond this particular podcast episode, but basically this means that through filters you can change the orientation of light, and with LCDs you can change which light is able to pass through into you know a display or from a display to you, and that determines what you see on that display. LCDs require typically a backlight. There are some that rely on reflective material, so it relies on light from your environment hitting the display, and then you see the reflection. But with things like LCD monitors and televisions, we're talking about a backlit 
device. And because of that, LCDs traditionally have limitations when it comes to displaying a high contrast ratio. Contrast refers to the difference between the brightest colors a display can show versus the darkest colors it can show. And because LCD monitors and televisions have a backlight, that affects how dark you can get because there's always a little bit of bleed through with light. The history and tech of LCDs is truly fascinating stuff, so I'll save that for a future episode. Next, we have LED and OLED. Luckily, we have some tech that frequently pops up when you're talking about displays, and here we go. An LED is a light-emitting diode, and an OLED is an organic light-emitting diode. So, obviously, we need to define some stuff here, right? So, first of all, what in the blue blazes is a diode? It is a component in electronics that acts as kind of like a one-way street for electrical current. So a diode will allow current to pass in one direction, but it will prevent it from going the opposite direction. Diodes are one of the basic elements in circuitry and electronics, and it's a type of semiconductor. And there's a lot more to be said, but (laughs) we can't spend all podcasts talking about it. So an LED or light-emitting diode, is a subset of diodes. So it allows electricity, or current rather, to pass one way, but not the other. And as the name suggests, it's a diode that emits light as current flows through it. Essentially, electrons get pushed to higher energy levels, and when the electrons are moving back down to their normal energy levels, they have to release that excess energy, and they do that in the form of photons, you know, the particles of light. LEDs don't need as much energy to produce light as other light sources. They are far more energy efficient than, say, incandescent bulbs. Uh, They're even more energy efficient than fluorescent lights. They also last a lot longer than either of those two types of lights. So LED light bulbs are great, though they tend to be pretty expensive, particularly compared to fluorescents and the old incandescents. But they last a lot longer, and the amount of energy they use is much lower, so switching to them can save money over the long term. It's just that upfront cost is a high one. An LED television uses LEDs as the backlight source, and they have great optical range, and as I mentioned, they have high energy efficiency, which brings down the power consumption on flat panel televisions that use LEDs. They've been around since 2005, and they tend to have better contrast ratios than your typical, you know, normal LCD televisions pre-LED. An organic light-emitting diode is an LED that contains an organic compound film, and that compound film is electroluminescent, which means it lights up when current passes through it. One of the many cool things about OLEDs is that, since we're talking about a film you can actually create OLED-based displays that are extremely thin and are, in fact, flexible. You have to have the right electronics behind it that are also flexible, but you can have flexible displays. So OLED displays have led to some really cool features, you know, like bending TVs or curving TVs or televisions that can fold up or unfold or unroll. And smartphones as well, we've seen some at least concepts of that. So you these malleable display technologies depend on OLEDs, and most of them cost more than my house did. Well, at least that used to be the case. These days, you can find OLED televisions capable of displaying resolutions of 4K or higher, starting at around 
That is not chump change, I know, but it's still way less expensive than the earliest OLED TVs, which cost in the tens of thousands of dollars when they first hit the market. Moving on, next we have Mac. Mac is the name of the fictional boxer in the Punch-Out! series, but it also stands for Media Access Control, and we typically see it paired with the word address, giving us Mac address. This refers to a unique identifier for a network interface controller, or NIC, so there's another bonus initialism. This is used to identify a specific element connected to a computer network. And it just takes a little thinking to realize how this is necessary, right? If you're connecting various machines together in a network, you need some way to identify every single device connected, or else you would never know how to send information from one specific machine to another. It would be more like a giant party line with all machines just broadcasting to the rest of the network, and that would be chaos. You wouldn't know who was saying what, and it would all be jumbled up. It's bad enough to think about just in terms of communication, but when you get to stuff like file transfers and the like, it would just be untenable. So a MAC address, usually, is something that is burned into a particular network interface controller. So it's actually like a permanent thing as part of a piece of hardware that connects as part of the network. Uh, And it's determined by whatever company manufactured that controller. So you can think of it kind of like a serial number that's tattooed onto the controller, and each tattoo is unique in that network. Now, sometimes a MAC address is only mostly permanent, which means there are actually some methods in which a person, like a network administrator, could change a MAC address for a specific piece of hardware. Now for the fun bit. These network interface controllers and their unique MAC addresses These are necessary within a single network. So let's say we've got two NICs connected inside network A. They would each need a unique MAC address or else nothing would work. But let's say we've actually got two separate networks. We've got network A and we've got network B. And we find out that there's an NIC in network A and it has the exact same MAC address as an NIC in network B. Does everything fall apart then? Nope. These unique MAC addresses are only necessary within a single network. So when you have two different NICs connecting two separate networks, they can have the same MAC address. No problem. There's no conflict there. There's a lot more to say than that, but you know, you know the old song and dance at this point. MIDI is next. This is Musical Instrument Digital Interface, M-I-D-I. This is one of my favorite technologies. It's a technical standard that is sort of like an umbrella. So under this technical standard, you have specifications for digital interfaces, uh, as well as the connectors that connect these various digital interfaces to things like electric uh, musical instruments and computers. And you have a communications protocol. And this allows various electronic audio and computer equipment to quote unquote, talk to each other. So a MIDI keyboard, like a a musical keyboard, like a synthesizer, uh, a synthesizer specifically with MIDI, that is, with the right connectors, you could connect that directly to a computer or to a digital audio station that in turn connects to a computer. And it could be any kind of computer as well. Like, I always think of big desktops because I think of the big, like, production type stuff. But you could have a laptop. It could be a smartphone. It could be a tablet. As long as you have the compatible connectors that allow you to 
insert that into the system, it would work. And the MIDI protocol emerged in the 1980s as electronic music was really evolving. Digital instruments and digital editing tools were changing the industry, but that also meant there needed to be some sort of standardized way to handle all this stuff, or else we would again run into that problem where you have a billion different proprietary formats that emerge and they make things difficult. Interestingly, MIDI does not transmit any sort of audio signal. Uh, You may have listened to music played back from a MIDI file, but that file doesn't actually contain any sound. You can think of it more as that file contains the description of sound, instructions for creating sound. So it's kind of like telling a system, you need to play this specific note at this specific time for this long and with this intonation and with this amount of volume. The, and through MIDI, an engineer could change really, really minute, tiny things about digital recording, like how a note gets expressed. It's really neat stuff. This means, by the way, that if you have a MIDI keyboard, meaning a you know like a musical keyboard that is MIDI compliant, that keyboard has to have some other component inside of it that actually generates the sound. You could create if you wanted to, a purely MIDI keyboard without that kind of component. But that would mean that if you were to play that keyboard, you wouldn't actually be generating any, you couldn't like feed that to a speakers or anything. It wouldn't create sound. I mean, the only sound you would get was that percussive sound of your fingers hitting the keys, which kind of seems like it would be a a type of performance art that I would really rather not sit through. One of the best analogies I've seen, and I really wish that I had come up with this one, is that MIDI is to digital music the way old piano rolls were for player pianos. So a piano roll doesn't generate sound on its own. It only works when you put it through a player piano. The real beauty of this is how MIDI allows for the computational control of musical expression which can come in awfully handy if you're seeking out a particular sound and vibe for a piece of music. Even if you don't use the electronic digital version as your final product, it might give you the feeling you want so that when you record it for realsies with, you know, quote unquote, real musical instruments, I object to that phrase, but some people use it. It means that then you could replicate what you had created digitally. Now, I've done episodes about MIDI, so if you're interested in learning more, be sure to do a search on the Tech Stuff archives. When we come back, we'll finish out the M's, and it's with a biggie. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, MP3 and MPEG. All right, here we go. MP3 stands for MPEG Audio Layer 3. But then that raises the question of what the heck does MPEG stand for? And we got to get there. So MPEG technically stands for the Moving Picture Experts Group. So you remember earlier in this episode about JPEGs and how that came out of a subcommittee that was working on the digital coding of still images. This is kind of similar, except MPEG brings together various working groups of engineers from different organizations to create standardized ways to encode different kinds of media, which includes but is not exclusive to video. And that gets a little confusing, right? I mean, you would think that a group called the Moving Picture Experts Group would be concerning itself only with moving pictures, aka video. The group came together in the late 1980s, and while the primary effort was in encoding video digitally, that includes the necessity of encoding audio as well, because a lot of video has audio associated with it. And encoding also includes compression, because raw media files, like video and audio, are pretty darn big, like way too large to transmit easily over network connections way back in the 1980s. Those were slow connections, and it just wasn't feasible. So these working groups in this alliance innovated in ways to code video and audio digitally in ways that computers can handle, and to compress file sizes down so they weren't quite so huge, and you could actually you know, transfer them from one computer to another without it taking a week. I think most folks, when they use the word MPEG, or rather, I guess, the acronym MPEG, they actually mean the file extension MPEG or MPG. This is just one of the formats that this particular working group spawned. 
An MPEG file is a compressed video file format. Uh, it's one that used either MPEG-1 or MPEG-2 file compression. But these days, most of the time, we're talking about MPEG-2 because that's the type of file compression designed for higher definition video. MPEG-1 was like VHS level definition because you got to remember this was coming out in the late 80s when VHS was still a thing. So not very practical for today's video. Uh, it's the enhanced version of MPEG compression is MPEG-2. Some folks use MPEG as shorthand for just video file, even if the video file isn't in MPEG format. So that can get a little confusing. But then that raises the question, what about MP3? Well, that's a coding format specifically for digital audio, and it's a lossy form of compression, which means that in the process of compressing the audio file to a smaller size, the protocol ditches some of the information from that original raw audio file. So how does the MP3 process quote-unquote know which information it should lose? And it's all based on psychoacoustics, or how we perceive sound. And moreover, which sounds might be beyond the scope of human hearing. For example, because of our limitations in our perception, it is very hard for us to hear a soft sound that's played immediately after a very loud sound. So let's say you've got a digital audio file, and that has a very soft sound played right after a really loud one. The MP3 compression algorithm essentially says, heck, no one's going to be able to hear this little soft sound anyway, so we might as well lose it. If you can't hear it, it doesn't need to be there. And snip, that little bit of data doesn't make it into the compressed file. Similarly, there may be some sounds within that digital audio recording that are below or above the threshold of human hearing when it comes to pitch. So we typically define this as consisting of tones between 20 hertz, which is a very, very low pitch, and 20,000 hertz, which is a very high pitch. And most folks start to lose the ability to hear the higher pitches as they age. Uh, this has led to some interesting technologies, such as sounds designed to annoy young people that old people can't hear. So it's used to help uh, discourage loitering in places like convenience stores. True story. An MP3 algorithm could trim away all frequencies that are identified as being outside the scope of typical human hearing. The MP3 compression algorithm is kind of a sliding scale, so you can set parameters as to how much you want to compress the file size. That in turn will affect how drastically the algorithm will alter the raw audio. So this can result in a compressed file that just doesn't sound good. And there are plenty of audiophiles who will just turn their noses up at lossy compression formats like MP3, no matter what level of compression you use, and they prefer lossless file formats that keep all the information there. And in some cases, they have a point. But in others, well, your own experience might vary drastically from someone else's. My own hearing must be shot, because at least in some cases, I have trouble telling the difference between a decent MP3 and a lossless audio format of the same file played on the same set of equipment. Moving on. Next, we have NFC. This stands for Near Field Communications, and we're back on more protocols. So in this case, we're talking about communications protocols that allow for electronic communication between two devices that are pretty darn close to 
each other. And by pretty darn close, I mean they have to be at at maximum four centimeters apart or one and a half inches. You get beyond that and the NFC range doesn't work. NFC allows for low throughput data exchanges, meaning you wouldn't use NFC to, say, transfer a digital movie from a computer to a smartphone or tablet. The protocols just don't allow for that, at least not on any timescale that would be convenient. Instead, NFC is meant to transfer small bits of data for specific purposes. For example, you might use an NFC-enabled device to tap to pay for something with a compatible payment system. You've got a credit card stored in your smartphone. Your smartphone's got an NFC chip. The vendor you go to has an NFC pay area. You just tap your phone to that, and it makes the little communications transfer, and boom, you're set. There are electronic ticket systems that use this kind of stuff where you can use your phone as like an electronic ticket to get into a venue and no one has to scan a QR code or anything like that. You just tap your phone. NFC allows for the communication between your device and the venue device. And boom, once it's authenticated, you get to go in. That's the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. And while you wouldn't use NFC to transmit large files directly, you could use NFC to facilitate some other type of connection between devices that does allow for larger file transfers. So for example, you might be able to tap your phone against a computer that happens to store, you know, like a particular digital movie you want to transfer. And NFC might be used to establish a wireless network link between your smartphone and the computer. And then the movie would transfer over this wireless network link. It wouldn't be using NFC itself to do that. NFC would just be used to initiate that connection. One popular example of NFC technology is the Amiibo, a collection of toys from Nintendo that use NFC chips to allow the toys to connect with Nintendo game systems like the Wii U and the Nintendo Switch. If you're not familiar with these things, so they're these little toys that have you know a flat base. So you might have Mario or or Samus, or thing, characters like that, Link, Zelda. So they're typically famous Nintendo characters. You buy these toys, and then on certain games with these systems, you can bring the toy in close contact with the game system, and doing so unlocks new features in the game, which might mean that you can play as a new character, or you unlock levels that you didn't have access to before, or you get a new set of moves or equipment, all sorts of stuff like that. It's a pretty neat implementation of NFC technology. Other simple uses of NFC can include anything from sharing information, so it's like the equivalent of exchanging business cards, but you're doing it digitally, or using an old mobile device to transfer settings to a new one. So you buy a new phone, you bring your new phone in close contact with your old phone, your old phone says, this is how this owner likes things, and your new phone immediately adopts those settings. So that way, your phone's already the way you like it. I've done that multiple times with my various phones. Moving on, we have OEM. This stands for Original Equipment Manufacturer. And typically we use OEM to describe a company that's in the business of making components that are used in the products of other companies. So in other words, an OEM is a type of company that might make the circuit board you find in a particular electronic device marketed by, I don't know, let's say Atari. So Atari makes the device, or at least markets and sells it. But some of the components in that device come from other companies, OEMs. 
Sometimes this gets a bit muddy. So for example, let's say you were to buy a computer off the shelf of a store like Best Buy. And let's say that that computer was made by Dell and it has the Windows operating system on it. Well, Dell doesn't make Windows. That's a Microsoft product. So in this case, the computer you buy is a Dell computer, but Microsoft is an OEM because that's the company that made the operating system that this computer is using. Next, we've got OTT. Yeah, you know me. This is uh, over the top. That's what OTT stands for, over the top. Now, I could get super silly on this and explain that Over the Top is a 1987 action film starring Sylvester Stallone in which he plays a truck driver who competes in professional arm wrestling tournaments and ultimately competes in a tournament that will win him a new truck and the love of his son. And yes, that is a real movie and I love it and it is not good. It is not a good movie, but I love it anyway. And that's what OTT is in my heart. But In tech, OTT actually stands for over-the-top in the case of a media service. So the media service goes over-the-top of some other traditional service, like cable TV. So with OTT, you get media delivered over internet connectivity as opposed to something like a cable feed or satellite feed. So all those streaming services like Disney+, Netflix, HBO Max, Peacock, Hulu, and all the rest... All of those count as OTT services. Next, we've got P2, the new number 2, P. So P, the number 2, P. That stands for peer-to-peer, and in this case, the 2 is T-O. Peer-to-peer. This is a distributed approach to networking. The individual machines in a peer-to-peer network are nodes that connect with each other and they can distribute workloads across the various nodes. This is different from the traditional client-server network, because if you had just a pure client-server network, you would have a centralized server that would then communicate with each individual client. The clients in the client-server network would not communicate with each other. They wouldn't be like nodes. They would just communicate with the server. They might be able to communicate with each other using the server as kind of a mediator, but they wouldn't directly connect to each other. So in a peer-to-peer network, you can have the nodes communicate directly with each other and work directly with each other. That opens up all sorts of possibilities. For example, in certain computational problems, you can have the various computers on the P2P network lend a hand and speed up the time it takes to solve that problem. Or you can have P2P networks share files quickly through the network itself. File sharing networks gave P2P a really bad name in the late 90s and early 2000s. There is nothing wrong with sharing files if you have the authority to do it, like if you have the permission to share files. But a lot of folks took the opportunity to use P2P networks to distribute files that they didn't actually have the rights to do that with, namely stuff like music files and software. P2P allowed for the rapid sharing of files across networks, uh, exacerbated by organizations that specifically made software that that prioritized that sort of stuff. And that saw a spike in digital music piracy, which then led to big media companies bringing the hammer down on various people accused of pirating music files. And it got real ugly. But there's nothing inherently wrong or bad about P2P networks. It's how you use a tool that makes it good or bad, in most cases, anyway. All right, 
That's enough for this episode. When we come back in our next one in this series, we will continue through the peas and we still got probably two more episodes left. I'm looking at, I'm just looking at the list of acronyms I have and feeling the weight of them on my shoulders, but we, we will get through them and then we'll move on to totally different types of topics. And on that note, if you have suggestions for things I should cover in tech stuff, reach out to me on Twitter. A few of you have been doing that recently. It's been awesome. And let me know what you would like me to talk about. The uh, The Twitter handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with with Zumo Play.